Turn your Bibles to James chapter 3, please. Long time ago, there was a TV show on, and there was a, I think his name was Sergeant Friday, and he said, just the facts, ma'am, just the facts. He was just a meat and potatoes kind of guy, no frills, no sensational things. James is kind of like that. He's a boots-on-the-ground guy. He doesn't, there's not a whole lot here. He just kind of cuts right to the chase. And I'm so excited to be in this portion of Scripture. Chapter 3 is uh, a favorite portion of Scripture of mine. One, because it's so convicting about the tongue. (laughs) But number two, it talks about heavenly wisdom, wisdom from above and the difference of the wisdom of the world. So in chapter 3, you can turn there and get ready, but I'd like just to make a couple of opening comments. We've already seen in the study of James that true believers, genuine believers, will manifest their faith by the way that they live. James has told us repeatedly that a genuine believer will look like this, and then he tells us what they do. It's manifested by their endurance in trials, chapter 1. Their humility and temptation, also chapter 1. It's also evident by their habitual obedience to the word of God, their impartial response to people and their needs. Finally, we saw how their faith declared itself genuine by the presence of works that are motivated by the gratitude, their gratitude to God. All of this is just extremely practical. It hits us right between the eyes. And now James is going to show us another evidence of genuine faith, and it is through the virtue of self-control, but self-control as it's related to the tongue. Now, I'd just like to relay some facts on the tongue to you. And some of you that have been with us for a number of years, you will remember that at the beginning of the church, I used to preach on gossip and slander once every six months. Same message. And it amazed me because multitudes of people would come back and tell me, that was great. And it's like the third time I preached it. You know, it's like brand new, brand new truth. But that's, that's okay. The Spirit of God takes us where we're at and, you know, brings us along. So if you hear some of these illustrations and so forth, they're probably coming off of that session that I did on gossip and slander. Each day, it's estimated that we speak enough words to produce a 54-page book. We talk that much, okay? In a year's time, that means we could come up with 66 800-page books. In fact, the calculation goes on to figure that the average person spends one-fifth of their entire lives talking. This is scary. From another angle, someone has said that the average man speaks between eighteen to 25,000 words a day. A woman gets an additional 5,000. And she usually gets those in just before bed. Now here's the problem, because most guys get up to their 25,000 words during their work day. When they get home after work, ladies, they typically don't have anything left to say. So give them a break. They've already put in their 25,000. The first thing the doctor typically does when we go in is he says, open up and say, ah. 
But in James 3, James is going to show us that just as our physical temperature can be taken by putting a thermometer under our tongue, our spiritual temperature can be measured by how we use our tongues for everybody to see. Washington Irving said this, a sharp tongue is the only edged sword that grows more sharp with constant use. If your lips would keep from slips, five things observed with care, to whom you speak, of whom you speak, and how and when and where. One last one. I have often regretted my speech, never my silence. I've often regretted my speech. How many times have you? Okay, there's many fingers pointing back at me when I say this. How many times have you said something, and as soon as it came out of your mouth, went, oh, oh. You didn't make that face because, but you did it inside. You know, open mouth, insert foot, that kind of a thing. Uh, That's happened to all of us. We need to be careful with our words. Then there's always uh, tombstone wisdom. On a windswept hill in an English country churchyard stands a drab gray slate tombstone. And the quaint stone bears an epithet, not easily seen unless you stoop over and closely look. And the faint etchings read thus. Beneath this stone, a lump of clay, lies Arabella Young, who on the 24th of May began to hold her tongue. Okay, I'm going to get it, aren't I? So I'll throw one in so I don't get it as bad. My wife's favorite verse in all the Bible is Ecclesiastes 5.2. Uh, brings biblical value. It's a good verse. God is in heaven and you are on earth, therefore let your words be few. God is in heaven, you are on earth, therefore let your words be few. Uh, She also says when it's all said and done, there's a whole lot more said than's done. And that's not from the Bible. So there seems to be no end of quotes and quips when it comes to the tongue. James, a half-brother of our Lord Jesus, gives us the longest discourse on the tongue in the Bible in these verses. James 3, 1 through 12. It's all about the tongue. So let's just read them and see what he has to say. Verse 1. Let not many of you become teachers, my brethren knowing that as such we will incur a stricter judgment. For we all stumble in many ways. If anyone does not stumble in what he says, he is a perfect man, able to bridle the whole body as well. Now if we put bits into the mouths of horses so that they will obey us, we direct their entire body as well. Look at the ships also. Though they are so great and driven by strong winds, They're still directed by a very small rudder wherever the inclination of the pilot desires. So also the tongue is a small part of the body, and yet it boasts of great things. See how great a forest is set aflame by such a small fire. Boy, never a truer word than that. And the tongue is a fire, a very world of iniquity. The tongue is set among our members as that which defiles the entire body and sets on fire the course of our life and is set on fire by hell. For every species of beasts, birds, 
reptiles, creatures of the sea, is tamed and has been tamed by the human race. But no one can tame the tongue. It is a restless evil and full of deadly poison. With it we bless our Lord and Father, and with it we curse men who have been made in the likeness of God. From the same mouth come both blessing and cursings. My brethren, these things ought not to be this way. Does a fountain send out from the same opening both fresh and bitter water? Can a fig tree, my brethren, produce olives or a vine produce figs? Nor can salt water produce fresh. Let's pray. Father, as we look into James chapter 3 and do this study on the tongue, we pray, Lord, that you'd open up our eyes. Father, every single one of us, bar none, can learn from these verses. Every single one of us can exercise greater self-control over our tongues. Lord, and that's James' point in this whole section, is that it's unwieldy, and we get in much trouble by our lack of self-control. But we who have believed in the Lord Jesus Christ, we have a power within us, the transforming power of the Holy Spirit that is able to mature us and perfect us so that we become more mature, more complete, and can bring greater honor to you by the use of our tongue. So, Lord, we just pray for this study that you would receive much glory through it. In Jesus' name, amen. Now, previously, James taught the authentic, living, and vibrant, and genuine faith reveals itself openly in the production of observable good works. That was just the last couple of weeks. Good works were identified as the external authentication, the external authentication of genuine living faith. And I think that's the way that you should look at works. It's the authentication of the fact that you're a, a true believer. It's not something that you do in order to gain faith or something to gain God's approval, but it's something you do out of a heart of gratitude for what he's already done in saving your souls. Now, in this text, in this portion of the epistle, he teaches the same faith, that vibrant, genuine faith, also produces an internal virtue in the life of the believer, and that internal virtue is self-control. It's also fruit of the Spirit, self-control. And the self-control James addresses is nowhere more clearly seen than in the use of the tongue. The tongue of a person and the speech that they use can tell us an awful lot about their spiritual condition. And... (laughs) It's so incongruous to hear a person profess the name of Jesus Christ and yet by a speech deny him repeatedly. It should always give us pause when we run into that kind of a situation. Jesus made this clear in Matthew 12, 35 through 37. You can take note of that. A good man out of the good treasure of his heart brings forth good things. And an evil man out of the evil treasures brings forth evil things. But I say to you that for every idle word men may speak, they will give an account of it in the day of judgment. For by your words you will be justified, and by your words you will be condemned. Sobering, very sobering. Every idle word 
How many idle words come out of our mouth? Every single day. Also in Luke 6, 43 through 45, Jesus said, For no good tree bears bad fruit, nor again does a bad tree bear good fruit, for each tree is known by its own fruit. For figs are not gathered from thorns, nor are grapes picked from brambles. The good person out of the good treasure of his heart produces good, and the evil person out of the evil treasure produces evil, for his mouth speaks his mouth speaks from what fills his heart. Okay? Open mouth, reveal heart. Open your mouth, reveal your heart. James mentions the tongue or speech in each chapter of his epistle. He was big on this. You can take these references down. James chapter 1, verse 19 and verse 26. James 2, verse 12, 14, 16, and 18. James 3, 1 through 12. James 4, 11, 13, 15 through 16. And James chapter 5, verse 12. Each chapter, he talks about the tongue. So it's not something that was just uh, small in his mind, in, in his thinking, in his teaching. The importance of speech and the power employed by the tongue should be take, uh, not be taken light, lightly. One uh, writer put it this way, I'm more deadly than a screaming shell from a howitzer, and I win without killing. I tear down homes and break hearts and wreak lives. I travel on the wings of the wind. No innocence is strong enough to intimidate me. No purity pure enough to daunt me. I have no regard for truth, nor respect for justice, no mercy for the defenseless. My victims are as numerous as the sands of the sea and often are innocent. I never forget and seldom forgive. My name, gossip. The tongue is a horrible, horrible tool in the hands of the devil. And gossip is just one abuse of the tongue. James 3, 1 through 12, identifies at least five implications related to the tongue. And this is what I'll be working through, this, this grid, if you will. Today, we're just going to get to the first one. The tongue and the teacher, verses 1 and 2. The tongue and the teacher, verses 1 and 2. The tongue and its size and impact, verses 3 and 4. The tongue and destruction, 5 and 6. And then in verses 7 through 8, the tongue and control. How do you control a tongue? And then verses 9 through 12, the tongue and compromise. And so today, we'll just look at the tongue and the teacher. And that's verses 1 through 2. The dangerous work of teaching. Now, of course, you recognize that I'm a teacher. As a preacher, I'm a teacher. Preaching and teaching are not the same. Martin Lloyd-Jones said that preaching is teaching on fire. <laughs> and I like that. He's a great preacher as well as a great teacher. But these verses are so indicting and so frightening. Let not many of you become teachers, my brethren, knowing that as such we will incur a stricter judgment. And that is the truth. Since the teacher's work is performed primarily using the tongue, the controlled use of the tongue is very important. I, you know, Mary does not bring her thoughts concerning my sermon to me until Tuesday. For the first part of our lives, she used to talk to me on the way home. 
And then she waited until Monday. Then I started taking Mondays off. And so I just said, okay, Tuesday, Tuesday, Tuesday. And that gives a little bit of grace in between there. And plus, I'm a little bit calmer. Because when you get up here for an hour and talk, wow, it's daunting. It's daunting. I transcribe everything I say. And the only time I get in trouble usually is when I go off my script. I read this, I pray over it, I correct it. Sometimes Sunday morning very early I correct it. So it's daunting to get up every Sunday and speak for an hour. James wanted his readers to understand that the responsibility for the Christian teacher is very serious. And in his first two verses, James is giving a warning that there's added responsibility attached to those who teach. And even though James understood the importance for the church to have teachers, his language leads his readers to evaluate the role of teaching. And you should. Now, I don't know if, if this is still happening in evangelical churches, but about, about 10 years ago, there was something called the, the cussing preacher, Mark Driscoll. And he used to swear right from the pulpit. And other preachers thought, oh, that's kind of cool. That's kind of hip. He wore, you know, a T-shirt and holy jeans and stuff. And they were straight leg jeans and tight, tight jeans. And he was very cool. Well, that whole empire toppled. Beware, people. The tongue is a very, very dangerous thing. And teachers are held to a higher level of accountability. Number one, not many teachers become. In the original language, the passage begins with the negative at the very front of the sentence. Not many, not, not many teachers become. Do not, don't, let it not be. Placing the negative at the front of the sentence in the Greek would have jumped off the page to its readers. It would have got their attention right away. And the negative is, don't, let a lot of people become teachers. The language James used here shows that there had to have been an abundance of teachers, and he wanted his readers to understand that not everyone that's teaching should be teaching. The negative is given in the imperative and clearly shows that there was a desire, and James wanted to stop that movement that many were becoming teachers at least causes readers to slow down and consider the implications of assuming such a role. He wanted them to count the cost, the role that they desired to fill. You know how you know a teacher is a teacher? Is if you learn something. If you sit and listen week after week to somebody that's teaching and you're not learning anything, chances are quite certain that person is not gifted with teaching. The term for teachers here refers specifically to teachers, and it doesn't necessarily mean that they were officially recognized, although it would certainly include them. It means anyone who would assume to instruct their audience. And this was unfam not unfamiliar uh, to the converts from Judaism. Uh, in Judaism, in the synagogue, such as in Acts 13, you can read about this in Acts 13, Paul and Barnabas were in Sidian uh, Antioch on their first missionary journey, and they visited a synagogue on the Sabbath. And the scripture says in uh, 13, Acts 13, 15, 
And after the reading of the law and the prophets, the synagogue officials sent to Paul and Barnabas, and they said this, Brethren, if you have any word of exhortation for the people, say it. And so the opportunity for anybody to stand up in the spot of a teacher was present, but James is giving a warning about taking this opportunity into consideration. Maybe there was a run on this, and James was trying to prevent it. It'd be like you, you first-timers coming in, that our elders singled you out before the service and said, after pastor gets done preaching, if you have anything you'd like to say, get up here. Not in this church. No way, Jose. Wow, talk about opening up Pandora's box. Can you imagine? Especially if it was after my sermon. So teachers, they held a prominent place in the early church. And back in Acts 13.1, teachers are listed together with the prophets. And in Ephesians 4.11, you have pastor teachers. And they're seen as gifted men that have been given to the church for its edification, its building up, and its establishment. Now, being able to teach was a mark of maturity to strive for. Okay? You can develop into a teacher by studying hard. In Hebrews 5.12, we read, For though by this time you ought to be teachers, you have need again for someone to teach you the elementary principles of the oracles of God because they weren't getting elementary truths, and so they needed to go back to the 101 stuff. And you need someone to teach you the oracles of God, and you have come to need milk, and not solid food. But it seems some, at the time of James' letter, had conceitedly seized the openness that they found in these churches to stand up and teach. And so these churches were receiving teachers, and James is saying, we got to put a stop to this. Don't you understand that you're going to be held to a higher accounting? Combined with the need for teachers and the esteem given to them, some grasped after something for which they neither had been called nor were adequately qualified to perform. And so James teaches the most that we have anywhere else in the Bible in these 12 verses to help them. Timothy was written to by Paul, and in 1 Timothy 1.7, Paul said this to Timothy, For some men, straying from these things, have turned aside to fruitless discussion, wanting to be teachers of the law, even though they do not understand either what they are saying or the matters about which they make confident assertions. I'm not saying that these teachers that stand up are not confident. Any old fool can be confident because they're self-deceived. But what are they saying and how does it line up with Scripture? We're big on the word here. (laughs) It's the word, 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 word. Because this is all we have. You know, the thing about membership, I have no authority in your life as a shepherd leading you, except to turn you to the word of God and to Jesus Christ. Your, your personal life is your personal life. The way you raise your children, unless they're, they're absolutely ripping the church apart, is the way you raise your children. We'll give you instruction as, as best as we understand from the scripture, what the scripture says about child rearing. We'll give you the best instruction we can glean from as far as a husband-wife relationship, but you have to live out these truths. This is not a cult. 
We are not a cult. But we do hold accountability as an important element in your Christian life. You need us. You need us as leaders. So James is not so much denigrating the role of teaching and dissuading anyone from the ministry of teaching as much as he is, as one commentator putting, censuring this false mania for teaching, not desiring to restrain those who were conscious of God's call upon their lives to carry on the work of accredited teacher. When we allow someone to teach, we test them. And if they're going to be in the pulpit I, for the first time, I always get a copy of their, what they're going to say. And that's well enough before so I can change things up if I need to. And that isn't being legalistic. That's being protective of you, the flock. And so teaching here is not, uh, you can't come into this church and just assume the role of a teacher. And, and there are many churches that would just open up that door to you. Oh, sure, take a Sunday school. Sure, start a Bible study in your home. That's okay. That's, no, we're just a little bit more cautious here because you can have false teachers creep in unawares very easily. Scripture says, because you know, if you look at verse 3, it says, because you know or knowing, that such, as such, we will incur something. Because you know the term brethren is there, that's nice because he's talking to brothers who are truly believers. Rather, he's addressing the members in his church or a church, vocal members, aggressive members, opinionated members, and cautioning them to beware. He has already addressed this issue briefly in 119 where he said, let everybody be quick to hear, slow to speak. And slow to anger. Now, every one of us has opinions. And, beloved, I'm going to just lower the boom on you right now. We are not all experts just because we have an opinion. An opinion is an opinion. That's all it is. And you can't take your opinion and take the stance as a teacher because you have an opinion on something. Talk radio has destroyed the whole idea of authority in speaking or authority in career. Everybody's an expert, okay? A lot of times, a lot of times, pastors in a smaller church like ours, we will get, you know, did you listen to MacArthur's sermon on, on, on the radio? I don't listen to John. I mean, I like John a lot, and I learn when I do listen to him, but I don't listen to him every day on the radio like some. Or Paul Washer, did you hear Paul Washer? Or, 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 or R.C. R.C. Sproul had the best sermon on Ephesians. I've had this happen when I'm preaching through Ephesians. It's like, what am I, chop meat? <laughs> it's, it's terrible, folks. You know, this social media thing's great on some levels, but on other levels, man, it's hard. Right? Those guys are, are excellent teachers or they wouldn't be on the radios, right? Don't compare your pastors with, you know, superstars, celebrities. Don't do that. Do you know why? Because you're not accountable to those superstars and celebrities. They don't know you. They don't know your kids and your family and your husband-wife relationship. We do. We care. You live and breathe and function here at Beacon. I'm not saying don't listen to 
those pastors, we can learn much from them. But be careful. Be careful. Another thing to remember is they all put their pants on one leg at a time. Okay? I've been around some of those big names. John MacArthur, John Piper. Okay? They're ordinary guys. They really are. They do transform when they go into the pulpit. That's for sure. They're gifted men. But they're just men. And if you put your hope in men, you're bound to be disappointed. So be careful of that. We'll all be judged more strictly. So don't take your opinion and start blabbing it about as though you're an expert in something. I saw a great meme. It said, we're no longer, what is it? Okay, we're no longer experts on the convoy in Canada. Now I'm an expert on Ukraine. Right? I mean, it's whatever is popular and trending in news. Everybody just trends right with it. Have you ever thought of yourself as a lemming? being led along by the echo chamber that you call news. Because you only listen to one news channel, I know. Maybe two, right? Careful, careful. Turn on those alternative news channels, which are, you know, the common news channels that most everybody that isn't you listens to. Listen to them occasionally, too. Man, we're in, we're in a fix. We're in a fix. But... Realize that when you do take that stance with that opinion, that you will be held accountable for your words. Be very, very careful. James included himself in the use of the first person when he said, we. And he gives a warning loud and clear. We will be judged more strictly. As believers, we will experience the bima, right? We talked about that already. Now, Quite simply, judgment for unbelievers, let me stress that, unbelievers, those who have not believed in Jesus Christ, will be in the future at the great white throne judgment. And that's spoken of in Revelation 20, verse 11 through 15. And I saw a great white throne, and him who sat upon it, from whose, whose presence earth and heaven fled away, and no place was found for them. Is at the end of time here. And I saw the dead and the great and the small standing before the throne, and the books were opened. And another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged from the things which were written in the books according to their deeds. And the sea gave up the dead which were in it, and death and Hades gave up the dead which were in them. That means the grave. And they were judged. Every one of them were judged. And this is the second death, the lake of fire. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, they were thrown into the lake of fire. Such a warning for everyone. From the youngest person here listening to me, if you're hearing me, you do not want to be thrown into the lake of fire. You want to go into heaven with God. To the disinterested teen listening, to the bored 20-something, and even the negligent husband or wife, every one of them means exactly what it says. We will all stand before God. And we're not going to stand in a family. We're not going to stand as a church. We're going to stand individually before God. Very sobering. 
every one of them, according to their deeds, will be judged. And the qualification here at the end where it says, and if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, they're thrown in the lake of fire. The book of life, those in the book of life are believers. And you see that their judgment comes. It's a different kind of judgment. It's a judgment of rewards at the beam of seat of Christ. We looked at this before in 1 Corinthians chapter 3. It says, For no man can lay a foundation other than the one which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. Now, if any man builds on the foundation with gold, silver, precious stones. So if you get saved and you begin to do those good deeds out of a motivated heart uh, from gratitude, and you build and you build on top of the foundation, which is Jesus Christ, gold, silver, and precious stones, you'll be rewarded. But if you build with wood, hay, and straw, your work will become evident, and a day will show it, because it's, it's to be revealed with fire. And guess what happens to wood, hay, and stubble with fire? It burns up, and it's gone. And so the fire itself will test the quality of each person's work. If any man's work which has been built upon it remains, which would be gold, silver, and precious stones, they will be rewarded. But if any man's work is burned up, he'll suffer loss. You don't get any rewards for those. It doesn't say that you're, you're going to be condemned. It says you'll suffer loss. But he himself shall be saved, yet as though by fire. No, it's not talking about purgatory. <laughs> Don't take that meaning here. That is not what this means. It means that all of us that are born-again believers, that are genuine believers, we have good works that we should be performing. Uh, look at Ephesians chapter 2, verse 10. There are works that have been bef- prepared for us before the foundation of the world that we should walk in them. That's what we should be doing. And if you don't walk in them and you're not walking in the Spirit or under the control of the Spirit, then what your life produces is wood, hay, and stubble. doesn't mean you're going to go to hell. doesn't mean you're going to be cast into the lake of fire. It means that you're going to suffer loss at the beam of seat of Christ. Now, some of us here need to make up for lost time, right? So get going. Eternity's for real. 80 years? Eternity? Are you kidding me? Live for Christ. And if you haven't been, start today. Look at verse 2 of James chapter 3. For we all stumble in many ways. Amen and amen and amen. We all stumble in many ways. If anyone does not stumble in what he says, he's a perfect man. Okay, what does that mean? Teachers are going to be judged more strictly as to the faithfulness of their teaching. Paul echoed this in his claim to the Ephesian elders in Acts 20. He says, For I did not shrink from the declaring of, uh, to you of the whole purpose of God. There's a lot of shrinking going on. A lot of shrinking going on. For I did not shrink from declaring to you the whole purpose of God. In Hebrews thirteen seventeen, which I read earlier, um, we have to give an account to God for your lives as leaders. So James affirms the fact that teachers will receive a more severe judgment by virtue of the impact that they use their tongues for. And teachers stumble in many ways. All people stumble in many ways. 
He moves away from addressing teachers specifically, some think that this is what James was doing, to addressing everyone in general. To stumble in a literal sense simply means to hit your foot against some obstacle and, and, and it causes you to trip or fall. To stumble does not prove fatal, but it impedes forward progress. I can go with that. Metaphorically, it means that there's been a failure in duty, a mistake that is blameworthy, or a word not often heard of these days that you've sinned. James teaches something about biblical anthropology here when he says that it's true of all human beings. It is true. We all stumble in many ways. Proverbs 10.19 says, Where there are many words, or as the King James Version, which I memorized it in, a multitude of words, there lacketh not sin. In the multitude of words... Remember those stats that I gave you, how many words you speak every day? In a multitude of words, there lacketh not sin, but he who restrains his lips is wide, wise. Ecclesiastes 7.20. Indeed, there is not a righteous man on earth who continually does good or who never sins. Romans 3.23. Can you all recite it for me? For all have sinned and of the glory of God. We know that. 1 John 1.8, if we say that we have no sin, we're deceiving ourselves and the truth is not in us. Instead of the commonly quoted Alexander Pope phrase, to err is human, the Bible says to sin is universal. To sin is universal. The problem is, what are you going to do about that sin? What are you going to do about your sin? Because we all stumble in many ways. Now, the many ways here refers to not so much as the quantity of stumbles, although that's true too, but more the variety of the ways in which we stumble. Consider how the Bible describes a tongue to get an idea of the various ways that we can sin with our tongue. The Bible says that the tongue is wicked. It's deceptive, uh, deceitful. It's perverse. The tongue is filthy. It is corrupt, it can be flattering, slanderous, it can gossip, it can be blasphemous, it can foolish, be foolish, boasting, complaining, cursing, contentious, sensual, and vile. Now, would you like me to go through each one of those and describe what that looks like? It's amazing, and that's not an exhaustive list. But that's the ways that we can use our tongues in a wrong way. If anyone doesn't stumble in what he says, then he's a perfect man. Now, I aspire to be a perfect man. I do, and I don't think it's wrong. I don't think it's prideful. The first thing that needs to be settled before we can make any sense out of that last part of the verse is that what does that word perfect mean? There are two possibilities. One carries the idea of absolute perfection without fault or flaw. In that case, it's hypothetical because James couldn't be saying that. The second possibility is that perfect means complete or mature, and that is the meaning of the word perfect here. And with that meaning, James is saying that the one who doesn't stumble in what he says gives evidence of a changed heart that has grown and matured to the point that he uses speech properly. I can tell you I do not talk in the same way 
as I once spoke. Thank God. (laughs) Thank God. The Lord saved me over 40 years ago, well over 40 years ago, and I'm, I'm glad I don't talk in the same way that I used to talk. And that open mouth, insert foot, I've had too many of those experiences. And it, it hurts. And I'm sure it hurt people that I embarrassed when I said what I said. Do you think about what you're going to say before you say it? <laughs> you know... I'm not kidding. Ask your husband if he thinks before he speaks. Husbands, ask your wife. Do you actually frame the thought in your mind to the end? (laughs) To the end. This helps with telling jokes as well. Have you ever begun to tell a joke and then you get in the middle and you you can't remember the punchline? But it was really funny. You're going to attest to that fact. Well, you didn't think the whole thing through before you opened your mouth and began to speak. How much more so with more important issues than a joke? It's hard. It's hard work to think about what you're going to say before you actually say it. Try it. It's revolutionary. It really is. It's certainly possible for us, by genuine faith, because we've got the Spirit of God living within us. And that spirit, incidentally, is, is the power which Christ raised, was raised by. And we can be transformed more and more into the likeness of Christ so that our speech becomes sanctified. The idea there is that spiritually alive people with genuine saving faith who have matured in their faith, they're able to control their tongue better. Maybe Peter was thinking of this process of maturation. Peter had a little bit of problem with his tongue, didn't he? He said the darndest things. First Peter 2, 21 through 23, I think he was learning, Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example for you to follow in his steps, who committed no sin, nor was any deceit found in his mouth. And while being reviled, He did not revile in return. Do you think Peter ever reviled in return? I think all the time. I think Peter was a hardcore east sider. (laughs) Or a north sider if you're from the other side of the river. I, I think Peter was just a man's man, a fisherman. And I think he had a lot to learn about controlling his mouth. But Jesus, he did not revile in return when he was reviled. While suffering, he uttered no threats. I mean, I'm learning self-control when a person cuts me off in traffic, let alone suffering threats. Nobody's threatened me recently, but they do cut me off in traffic quite often. So I know that God is working in my life, right? He uttered no threats, but kept entrusting himself to him who judges righteously. You see, if you can control your tongue, you're able to bridle your whole body as well. And this is a glorious truth. James is using the metaphor of the body here to signify the whole being of a person. All your faculties, your volition and and, and your emotions, your affections. His idea is simply that if a person can control their tongue which is so prone to sin, then the other areas of their life will come under control as well. This is an amazing fact. I'm sure that we all realize 
when I say if a person can control their tongue, that I'm speaking about that person yielding the matter of their speech to the Holy Spirit. Listen to me. And the control is then exercised by the Holy Spirit, not by the mere efforts of the person themselves. You will wear yourself out if your efforts are not supercharged by the Spirit of God. While there must be an intentionality that accompanies the yielding of yourself to the Holy Spirit, sheer human effort will not the battle win. That's fruitless. It's the marriage between volitional intent with enabling power of the Spirit of God. That's when it takes place. That's when sanctification really takes off. When we yield ourselves to the Spirit of God, it is not a passive thing. It is yielding ourselves to the Spirit of God as we intentionally step out and obey the Word of God. And when that marriage takes place, that's when you see transformation taking place. Now, I know some of us may, may have been taught that, you know, that kind of yielding to the Spirit of God is, is kind of a passive thing. Let go, let God. I'm trusting God and sinning like the devil. It's not just trusting God. It's trusting God and walking in obedience together. Okay? Very, very, very important. You see, it says in Ephesians, do not get drunk with wine, for that is dissipation, but be filled with the Spirit. And then the very next phrase says, speaking to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, giving thanks and making melody in your heart to the Lord always, giving thanks for all things in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, God, even the Father. We allow the Holy Spirit to control us, and when we focus on his control in our speech, which is so prone to sin, his control in other areas of our life begin to follow. In this way, our speech can become more Christ-exalting and God-honoring and people-helping and generally edifying and building up to others. If we desire to see this active in our lives, we need to make David's prayer our prayer. Turn in your Bibles to Psalm 39. Psalm 39, and I want you to underline verse 1. Okay? This needs to be our prayer if we're serious about dealing with our mouths. I said I will guard my ways that I may not sin with my tongue. I will guard my mouth as with a muzzle. Very, very intentional. Very intentional. And yet supercharged by the Spirit of God. And so let me give you a moment to make David's prayer your prayer in your own heart as the Lord leads you, and then I'll close in prayer, okay? Why don't you think about that couple of words in Psalm 39, 1. Our Heavenly Father, we... Truly are people that stumble in many ways, Lord. And our tongues not being least, there are many actions that we actually do in disobedience to your word. And we humbly come before you 
this morning, and we thank you, Jesus Christ, that you bore every sin on the cross, and you took them away. You have fully forgiven us for our sins, past, present, and even future. And we are grateful for that. Lord, help us to be more intentional in the sanctification process in our maturation. Father, that we won't be satisfied with the fact that we trusted you for our eternal salvation, but that we will crave and long for being transformed into the image of you, that we might be Jesus's walking around, reflecting the glory of our Father who is in heaven. By the deeds that we do, by the words that we speak, And Lord, that we might win many for Christ because of that, because we will be beacons of hope in the world that we live in. Let it be so, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.